recorded live. Sorry about that. Hello, this is William Fink. This is um, Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 11th, 2013. Tonight I will begin um, a presentation on the Book of Acts. First, I'd like to state that um, I did a program a few weeks ago on a certain universalist who, who, who claims to be Christian identity, and it's pretty sad that other Christian identity pastors have, have taken, taken his part in this and have not addressed any of the issues I raised in that program. Universalism, in, in the eyes of God, it is, is a clear violation of the scripture. The other night, those pastors, those so-called pastors, did a program which was entitled, um, What is Universalism? And they failed to define what universalism was. I will have to plan a program here shortly, I mean over the next few weeks, and I will define what universalism is. And I will also explain why it is evil and why identity Christians everywhere must reject it. Universalism is basically an offense to the Word of God. An introduction to the book of Acts, in my purview, a lot of the the things that mainstream commentaries might say about the book of Acts, I will probably omit here. The book of Acts, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, as it is fully called, is a book of transition. It records a transition of the legitimate faith in Yahweh God as decreed by his word, from the tenets of Hebraism to the constructs of Christianity, from the rituals of the laws of the Old Covenant to a faith in the Word of God in Christ, which was promised by the prophets of the Old Covenant and which was recorded in the Gospel of the New Covenant. This faith in Christ would, of course, include the Christian recognition of a need for conformance to the commandments of Christ which Paul termed a conformance to obedience, found in those original Ten Commandments and the admonition to love one's brother. It records a transition of the primary subject of the Word of God from the remnant of Jerusalem to the dispersion of the children of Israel, the lost sheep who were to be reunited to their God and an acceptance of Christ, and an acceptance of their redemption. That is what the New Testament is. It is the record of the gospel of the new covenant between Yahweh God and his people Israel. This new covenant was explicitly promised in the prophets by the word of God in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26, and elsewhere, and in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it was implicitly promised in many of the other writings of the prophets. We know that these gospels do indeed represent the promised new covenant since they came at the appropriate time, which was outlined in the 70 weeks vision of Daniel chapter 9. For which same reason, 
Many of the people in Judea were, as Luke put it, expecting the consolation of Israel, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. As Andrew the Apostle exclaims in John, as the so-called Samaritan woman, who was actually a descendant of, of Jacob, explained at the well, recorded in John chapter 4. There should be no doubt that the apostle called Luke wrote the book of Acts. The author claims to be the writer of the gospel, that first account mentioned in the opening of the book of Acts. The Greek style is precisely the same, which is found in the gospel written in his name. Paul tells us that Luke was with him at his imprisonment, Philemon verse 24. And from Acts we see that Luke was there when this happened, Acts chapter 27 verse 1. Paul was with, Luke was with Paul at the least. From Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 5, until the events recorded in Acts chapter 21, verse 18, and in Acts chapters 27 and 28, to the end of the book. Paul is arrested in Acts chapter 21, and the balance of the book follows his imprisonment as far as Rome. No other companion of Paul's meets all of these criteria. Luke is also mentioned by Paul at Colossians 4.14 and at 2 Timothy 4.11. Acts was written to be an extension of Luke's gospel. It can justly be called Luke Part 2. It is written to the same audience, the lover of God whom Luke addresses in his gospel. More will be said about that as we get into the opening verses of the book. At the beginning of Luke's first book, his gospel, we see in several places Luke's having recorded that the intended scope of the gospel was within the bounds promised in the Old Testament, that it was exclusively for the children of Israel. For instance, there were the words attributed by Luke to Mary at Luke 154 concerning the expectant birds of her child, where she said of God, that he has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring for the age or forever. Then there are other words attributed to Luke. Uh, I'm sorry, to Zechariah by Luke. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and from Luke Chapter 1, verse 68, I quote, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised the horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, which is given to us, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. And now you, child, shall be a prophet of the highest, for you shall go on before the face of Yahweh to prepare his path. Zechariah speaking of his son, John the Baptist. For which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their sins. Through the affectionate mercies of our God, by whom dawn visits us from the heights 
to shine upon those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. We will find later that the children of Israel were those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Luke then recorded the works of Simeon in the temple. The words of Simeon in the temple when the Christ child was presented and Luke called him. Luke called Simeon righteous and devout, expecting the consolation of Israel. Where from Luke chapter 2 verse 30, he attributed Simeon as having said in reference to God that mine eyes have seen your salvation, meaning Christ, which you have prepared in front of all the people a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. The nations and the honor both belonging to Yahweh's people Israel. Even though from the records which we have in our Bibles it is not stated explicitly, Luke was certainly not a Judean. There have been some cunningly contrived arguments constructed by apologists for the Jews in order to prove that somehow he was. However, this is not, it, it's certainly not the case. Many of the arguments are based upon the details found in Luke's Gospel concerning things belonging to the Judeans such as the temple and the priesthood. The arguments claim that Luke couldn't be, if he were indeed a Greek, or a Gentile as some term it, that Luke couldn't have known those things. But Luke himself tells us that his gospel was not constructed from his own observations. Rather, it was constructed from eyewitness accounts provided to Luke by others, along with Luke's own knowledge of history. Luke himself tells us that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart, Luke 2.19, and that she kept all these sayings in her heart, Luke 2.51, thereby revealing his primary source for the events of the births and the early days in the lives of John the Baptist and of Joshua Christ. Certainly, Luke, as he, as he avers in the, opening past, in, in the opening passage of his gospel, tells us, that he received his, these records that he put into an exacting order, he received them from eyewitnesses, from those who were eyewitnesses, are his exact words, in the Greek version anyway. Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, lists Tukikos, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus, who was called. Eustace, or Jesus, who is called Justice. And then he makes the statement that these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of Yahweh who are of the circumcision who have been a consolation to me. Following that, in the same passage, Paul mentions Epaphras, Demas, and Luke, Lucas, the beloved physician, passing along the greetings of these men to the Colossians in his salutation. Luke is only mentioned by Paul in two other epistles, near the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in the epistle to Philemon. Colossians 4 
certainly demonstrates that Luke was not counted by Paul as having been of the circumcision. Arguments against this interpretation attempt to limit the identity of the fellow workers of Paul, because Paul lists Tukikos, Onassimus, Aristarchus, Marcus, and, and, and Justice, he lists them as fellow workers. He names them as fellow workers. Arguments attempt against this interpretation attempt to limit the identity of the fellow workers of Paul to being preachers of the gospel. And they claim that Luke was not a preacher of the gospel, so therefore he could not be counted in that group. One so-called doctor of theology, Thomas S. McCall, has an essay posted at levitt.com which makes this preposterous claim. He needs to study the Bible a little more thoroughly before he lies. In Philemon, verse 24, the Apostle Luke, and for some strange reason, the name is spelled Lucas in the King James Version of that passage, so maybe you wouldn't find it if you were doing your study from a concordance. Luke in that passage is referred to, along with Epaphras, Marcus, Aristarchus, and Damas, as Paul's fellow workers. And although in that passage... The Greek, word, the, the, the Greek word is rendered by the King James Version as fellow laborers. It is nevertheless the same Greek word. Therefore, Paul's statements in Colossians chapter 4 indeed reveal that Luke was not a Judean and that he was not of the circumcision since all the men listed in Colossians 4 by Paul were indeed his fellow workers, as Paul attests in his epistle to Philemon. Additionally, there are many citations in the Anti-Nicene Fathers which label Luke as an evangelist, as much as John or Mark were considered evangelists. Luke is often listed as an evangelist along with John and Mark. Simply because he recorded the gospel doesn't mean that he didn't also announce it. So the people that claim that, that, that Colossians 4 somehow proves that Luke was a Judean, well, well they, that, that they're often, that, that they're being awfully cunning and they're basically lying because Philemon, verse 24, proves them wrong. Luke's personal appearance in the book of Acts also helps to establish that he was not a Judean, but that he was more likely a Greek convert from among the number of those first Christians in Antioch. In Acts chapter 15, there is the account of Paul and Barnabas disputing with certain of the Pharisees before the Christians at Antioch. And they removed to Jerusalem in order to settle the dispute before the chief apostles. Only after this point in his narrative does Luke begin to use the first-person plural pronoun, we, in his descriptions of the events in the lives of the apostles. Therefore, only at this point does Luke's account become a first-hand account, rather than being written solely in the third person. And all which is prior to this point must have been collected by Luke from other witnesses. It's possible, Luke being from Antioch, that he was at Jerusalem 
when the events of Acts chapter 15 occurred. But everything before that had to be received by Luke from other witnesses, just like his gospel and, and the records there were collected and, and, and constructed from other witnesses. At this point also, Luke 16, the book of Acts becomes centered primarily around the ministry of Paul. And from this point, Luke becomes the near-constant companion of Paul. The acts of the other apostles are hardly recorded from this time. The first-person perspective of Luke as the writer of Acts begins in Acts 16.10 in reference to Paul's vision, which came to him in a dream telling him to go to Macedonia, where it says, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we, Luke including himself in that narrative, endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. According to Eusebius, Luke was born at Antioch. That's a late account, right? There is little else in the Antinicene Fathers, the writings of the earliest Christian leaders, concerning Luke's background. Aside from these things, Luke's refined and fluid Greek and his identification by Paul as a physician also helped to indicate that he was a non-Judean who also had an advanced Greek education. So Colossians chapter 4, and in the eyes of the disputers, Colossians chapter 4, in company with the epistle to Philemon, surely prove that Luke was not a Judean, that he was not of the circumcision. Certainly not. Because the book of Acts is a book of transition, when looking to the scripture for doctrinal guidance, we cannot simply point to any one passage in the book of Acts and say, see, this is what the apostles did. That method would represent a very superficial way of looking at the book. And it seems to be the way, sadly, which is employed by most Christians today. Rather, we have to follow what the apostles did through the entire book of Acts and then examine their epistles in order that we may obtain a complete picture, at least a complete picture as the New Testament provides us. I am going to give a rather controversial example from one of my own papers entitled, Baptism in What? In that essay, it was shown that at Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, Peter realized what had happened previously in the home of Cornelius in Caesarea, which he described in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. And he related it to the other apostles who were in Jerusalem, where he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the prince, how he said, that John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. From this point on, water is not again mentioned in connection with baptism anywhere in the rest of the book of Acts. Then later, when you read Paul's letters, you see in Ephesians that there is one baptism 
Ephesians 4, 5. And as Paul explains later in that same epistle, that baptism is in the bath of the water in the word, Ephesians 5, 26. So we see bath of the water is basically an allegory because the baptism is in the word. Likewise, Peter in his own epistle at 1 Peter 3.21 states that immersion or baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the demand of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ. So we see what Christian baptism really is. Through Luke 12.50, long after he was baptized by John in water, in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 12, and, and there was a specific purpose for that baptism, because if we understand the works of the law, if we understand the commands in Leviticus, if we understand the commission that John the Baptist was given in the prophecy concerning him in the words of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, I believe it is, Malachi prophesied that that coming Elijah who would pave the way for the Messiah, that he would cleanse the sons of Levi. And John the Baptist may have baptized many people, but many of the sons of Levi were among those many people. Therefore, John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. He cleansed the sons of Levi. He also baptized Christ. Symbolically, that represented the washing of the priests and the washing of the lamb of sacrifice, which were commanded in the law. And if Christ was to be the lamb of God and be sacrificed on behalf of Israel, then the law had to be fulfilled. And the priests were cleansed according to the law, symbolically by John the Baptist, and so was the sacrifice. Long after that baptism of Christ, which occurs in Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Christ announces, I have a baptism to be baptized in. That surely can't be the baptism by the real, in the Jordan by John nine chapters before that. That cannot be several years before that. That cannot be the same baptism Christ was talking about. In the future tense in Luke chapter 12 where he says, I have a baptism to be baptized in. And where Paul tells us to be baptized in his death in Romans chapter 6 and elsewhere. Joshua himself tells us in John chapter 15, you are already clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Therefore, Paul is correct that baptism is in the bath of the water of the word in Ephesians 5.26. So we see a transition in the book of Acts in this manner, in the understanding of the true Christian baptism, which is clarified in the epistles of both Peter and Paul. The book of Acts is a book of transition. I am often confronted for this position on baptism with the writings concerning it, and its practice found in the early Christian writers, found in the Antinicene Fathers. However, those same people who would use the writings of the Antinicene Fathers, Antinicene Fathers, 
in, in order to confront this position, must admit that identity Christians, many identity Christians recognize a lot of other areas where we esteem these men, even though they were pious Christians for the most part, Tertullian, Irenaeus, that they were great men, Clement, Justin Martyr, we esteem them to have been in error in many other places. These things include their positions on one Enoch, the, the, the other so-called apocryphal literature, the Passover, the Sabbath day, the Feast of Tabernacles and, and First Fruits, their apparent universalism and their poor understanding of the scope of the gospel, their frequent insistences concerning the conversion of the Jews. Neither did most of them understand the history of Judea in the decades prior to Christ and the true nature of many of the Jews as the descendants of Canaan and Esau. These men weren't perfect, these early Christians. They were pious. Many of them were good. Many of them were, were prolific and intelligent. They weren't perfect. So if we admit that the anti-Nicene fathers were in error concerning any of these things, then we must admit that neither are they above criticism, and that their position on rituals such as baptism must also be held subject to a closer evaluation. Furthermore, many Christians do not realize that the book of Acts is hardly a complete record and that the accounts which Luke has preserved for us therein transpire over a period of nearly 30 years. We have 28 measly short little chapters for the Acts of the Apostles covering 30 years. There are at least 14 years and possibly longer between the beginning of the book and the events of Acts chapter 15. And the events detailed in the balance of Acts from the time of Luke's personal involvement in Acts chapter 16 until the end of the book also encompass a period of at least 14 years. 28 years at least in the book of Acts. In our presentation of the Gospel of Luke given here last year, it was established that John the Baptist was born in the spring of 3 B.C., and that Christ was born in the early autumn of that same year, 3 B.C. In August of 14 A.D., Tiberius Caesar comes to the hegemony of Rome upon the death of Augustus. Therefore, the, tw the year 28 A.D. marks the beginning of the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, as Luke puts it, which begins in August or September of that year, 28 A.D. Christ turns 30 shortly thereafter and is baptized by John, who had turned 30 the previous March. Baptized by John according to Luke chapter 3 at approximately 30 years old, at about 30 years old, as Luke states. With this account of Luke as an anchor date, the beginning of the ministry of Christ in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which began in August of 28 A.D., it is evident that the crucifixion happened in the spring of 32 A.D., after the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Christ, or at its end. The duration of the ministry of Christ can be ascertained by determining the feasts mentioned in the Gospel of John, along with some of the words and the parables of Christ himself and the prophecy of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. Therefore, 
The events detailed in the book of Acts began at the first Pentecost after the resurrection in 32 AD. And they end with Paul going in bonds to Rome circa 59 AD and arriving there circa 60 AD. We can be reasonably certain of these later dates because of what we know from Roman secular history and from the anchors which Luke provides. The book of the Acts of the Apostles covers mainly the Acts of Peter and Paul and hardly Peter, who we lose after Acts chapter 15. James, John, and Philip, and some of their deeds are mentioned but almost half the book exclusively concerns the later years in the ministry of Paul. Concerning the ministries of the other apostles, we know very little, except for scant details and allusions provided in the writings of much later Christians, which are not always in agreement. And there are actually certain novels that were created in the early years of Christianity concerning the lives of some of the apostles after the resurrection. The events of Acts chapter 15 can be dated to at least 46 AD, and possibly later. From Paul's words in Galatians, where in chapter 1 he says, speaking of his conversion, that after three years I went up to Jerusalem to relate an account to Cephas, Cephas being the Hebrew form of the word Peter in Greek, Petros is a stone, Cephas is Hebrew for a stone. Paul often referred to Peter as Cephas. And remained with him 15 days. Now this seems to refer to Paul's first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion and his eventual acceptance by the Christians there as described towards the end of Acts chapter 9. And then where Paul says further in that epistle to the Galatians at the beginning of of Galatians chapter 2, that after 14 years I had gone up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Now, unfortunately, Titus is mentioned in several of Paul's epistles, but not at all in the book of Acts. However, Barnabas accompanied Paul to Jerusalem only once in Acts chapter 15. And later in that same chapter, it is recorded that Paul and Barnabas had split for good. So it must be that event which Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 2. Now whether the 14 years of Galatians chapter 2 follow the three years of Galatians chapter 1, which I doubt, or whether they overlap following the time of Paul's conversion, is debatable since the text is not explicit. So it may be argued whether the events of Acts chapter 15 transpired 14 years or 17 years after Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. We'll see that it's most likely the 14 years. Neither can we determine the amount of time that transpired between the first Pentecost and Paul's conversion with any certainty from the text of Acts or from Paul's epistles. We certainly cannot assume that they all took place, all those events in the first chapters of Acts, the first eight chapters. We cannot, certainly cannot assume that they all took place the same year. If the edict of Claudius expelling the Jews, and I'll call them Jews at this point rather than Judeans, from Rome, 
took place in 49 AD, as it is popularly dated, then the first events of Acts chapter 18 can be tied to that year. Therefore, imagining the 14 years of Galatians chapter 2 verse 1 to follow Paul's conversion, rather than following Paul's being tacked on and following Paul's first trip to Jerusalem, there are 14 years between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 16. That leaves three years for all of the events from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 8 and those events of Acts, Acts chapter 16 and 17. And that's because if Acts chapter 18 begins in 49 AD and the crucifixion happened in 32 AD, deduct the 14 years between Acts 9 and Acts 15 and we have three years left. Paul's conversion must have taken place in 34 or 35 AD, and the events of Acts 16 and 17 must have transpired from either 47 or 48 to 49 AD. There's a year or two years on either side of Paul's 14, and it can't be determined. I, I can't at this time determine exactly that chronology. The earlier period must allow time for Paul's oppression of, Christian, of the Christians of Damascus and his bringing of prisoners to Jerusalem and their trials there. The later period must allow time for Paul's journey from Jerusalem and his visits to several places in Anatolia and Macedonia before his appearance in Athens. There are many other places where the Book of Acts is substantiated by secular history, particularly by Josephus and Tacitus two historians, one a Judean, the other a Roman, by which certain events can also be dated. This detail for history is also a characteristic of Luke's gospel. Two examples shall be provided here. In Acts chapter 23, verse 3, it is recorded that Paul calls the high priest Hananias a whitened wall and warns that God would smite him. The fulfillment of this warning is recorded by Josephus in Wars, Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 17, Paragraph 9, or in the Loeb Library numbering system, Book 2, Lines 441 and 442, where Hananias, along with his brother, had hid themselves from robbers in an aqueduct, and they are found and slain by them. That was the, the state of Judea at the time. This Hananias was made a high priest by the Roman procurator Phaedus in 45 or 46 AD. And he was slain in this manner while Florus was procurator about 66 AD. The procuratorship of Florus is described in Josephus' wars in Book 2, chapters 14, and he's mentioned again in chapter 17, paragraph 1. Paul's captivity began about 57 AD, two years before the end of the tenure of Felix as procurator. We know that from Acts chapter 24, verse 7. The tenure of Felix ended in 59 AD. At Acts, 
chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, we read, And after five days, the high priest Hananias came down with some of the elders, and a certain orator, Tertullus, who appeared to, to the governor against Paul. And upon his being called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Having obtained much peace on account of you and reforms coming to this nation by your foresight, in every way and in every place we approve, noble Felix, with all gratitude. This Felix is mentioned by Josephus twice in Antiquities Book 20, in Chapter 7 and Chapter 8. And he is also mentioned in Tacitus in his Annals of Rome at Book 12, Paragraph 53. He was procurator of Judea from 52 to 59 A.D. So the date here may be determined from Acts 24, verse 27, to be about 57 A.D. Acts 24, 27 says from the King James Version, But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, into his office. And Felix, wishing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. So therefore, Paul was arrested two years before the end of Porcius Festus's procuratorship. It ended in 59, so Paul was arrested in 57. Festus received the procuratorship from Felix. who, according to this, had charge of Paul for two years already and who left him bound in 59 AD. And probably sent Paul to Rome that very year. According to Luke's account in Acts, due to setbacks which were experienced, the trip to Rome took at least until the following year. where Paul must have arrived in early 60 A.D. So therefore, the, accounts of, the, the account of the book of Acts spans 28 years. The account of the events in the book of Acts spans 28 years. With this, I will begin with Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where Luke writes, That first account I had made concerning all things, a reference to Luke's gospel. O lover of, Yah o lover of Yahweh, literally, O lover of God, which Yahshua continued both to do and to teach. Now, I understand the King James Version says, but Joshua began both to do and to teach. The Greek word arco is began in the King James Version, but as it is explained by Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, arco, number two, it bears the meaning, having begun from some person or thing and continued or continuing to some person or thing. And he cites passages in Matthew, John, Acts, and Peter as examples of this use of the word. The word is used similarly in Luke's Gospel at Luke 18.3 and 23.30. We see both here and in the opening of his Gospel 
that Luke addresses his reader as a lover of God, Theophilus. The King James Version has Theophilus as if Theophilus were actually the name of a particular individual. I've seen commentaries speculating on the identity of this person, Theophilus. Doctors of divinity with nothing better to do. That, that <laughs> well, well, they're quite blind. Luke in his gospel does use the words, Critiste Theophile, most excellent Theophilus. As he also uses the vocative case, Theophile, here in his opening to the book of Acts. However, Theophilus is not necessarily a proper name. And it belongs to no known individual. Rather, it is apparent that Luke is using the word as a literary device, as it means lover of God. Luke is using the word as an address for whoever is reading his book at any given time, since Luke may expect none other but a lover of God to be reading his book in the first place. It is no different than a modern writer using the term dear reader or dear Christian or some similar eponym. So Luke addresses his book and his reader as a lover of God, and he does that in Luke chapter 1, and he does it here in Acts chapter 1. Verse 2, until that day he was taken up, commanding the ambassadors whom he had chosen through the Holy Spirit. Now the Codex Beze attends some word, appends, I'm sorry, appends some words to this passage and adds, he also ordered to proclaim the good message or the gospel. The Codex Beze has many significant differences in the text of Acts in comparison to the other major, major ancient codices. It is arguable whether they are even worth repeating. I do not for various reasons, hold the Codex Beze in much esteem. It should also be noted that of all the ancient major codices, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Beze, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Ephraimi Siri, um, there's a, the Codex Claromontanus, there's a whole list of others. Out of all these ancient major codices, which can be dated to the um, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries AD, the Codex Beze is the only one that the King James Version translators had access to at the time when the King James was translated. Now, interestingly, they didn't often follow it. They usually followed texts which were which are demonstrably derived from the Codex Alexandrinus, which is the Alexandrian tradition. And that can be that, that can be easily established by anybody who examines the apparatus of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae. Matthew 
Many of the variations contained in the Codex Beze will probably not be repeated in this, in, in this presentation of the Book of Acts. I will try to take note of those which are significant in their scope, of, of those which would actually um, affect the Christian outlook on, on, on our doctrine. Luke's opening describes his gospel precisely. Since the last three verses of his gospel describe this very thing which he mentions here. What Yahshua had done until that day he was taken up. Where it says in Luke chapter 24 from verse 50, And he, meaning Christ, led them as far as to Bethania, and raising his hands he blessed them. And it happened upon his blessing them that he had separated from them, and was carried up into the heaven. And they, worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising Yahweh. This account by Luke continues at that very point where his gospel had ended. And it begins by elaborating on those very events where his gospel which had left off, which shall be quite clear in the subsequent verses. It, it'll be really quite clear when we get to Luke chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, And speaking these things upon their watching, he was lifted up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. What we have here in the transition from Luke part 1 to Luke part 2, Imagine Luke part 1 as being the gospel of Luke. Imagine Luke part 2 as being the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke. Because the Acts of the Apostles really was written by Luke as an extension of his gospel. What we have here from Luke chapter 24 and the final three verses to Acts chapter 1 is what can only be termed as a recapitulation. A recapitulation of Scripture where a summary of an event is given at or towards the end of one particular chapter or book, and then the next particular chapter or book picks that up, picks that topic up, and describes it in more detail. That's the method used. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, which are recapitulated in Genesis chapter 2, where the creation of man is mentioned at the end of Genesis chapter 1, but in Genesis chapter 2, we go into the creation of man, Adamic man, in detail. That same method is found in Genesis chapter 10, and Genesis chapter 11, where in Genesis chapter 10, at the end of that chapter, we see it mentioned, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations and their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And then in Genesis chapter 11, we have the account of the Tower of Babel, which describes that division and how it happened by God separating the tongues of man in detail.
So we have a a summary at the end of Genesis chapter 10. We have a summarizing statement, which is described in detail in Genesis chapter 11. We see that same literary device, the recapitulation, here in the transition in the two books of Luke, where at the last three verses of Luke chapter 24, we see a brief description of Joshua being taken up from the apostles into heaven. And now it is recapitulated in more detail in the first chapter of the book of Acts until we get to verse 9, Acts 1-9, where it talks about the same thing again. Some pseudo-scholars deny the fact that the Bible will mention an event and go into it in more detail a chapter later. That's pretty sad because it's obviously, it's patently clear. It's patently clear here in the end of Luke 24 and the beginning of Acts. It's patently clear in the the end of Acts uh, of Genesis chapter 10 and, and then the entire body of Genesis chapter 11. And it's perfectly clear to anyone who can read a simple Strong's Concordance and understand some simple Hebrew words in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then Genesis chapter 2. It's all the same literary device. It's called recapitulation. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, with many proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of Yahweh. Now, the Greek word tekmerion appears only here in the New Testament. In the plural, it is proofs in the Christian New Testament. The King James Version is rendered, re- renders the word more fully as infallible proofs. There's nothing really wrong with that. Liddell and Scott define the word as a sure sign or token, a positive proof. Following the resurrection, several appearances by Christ to the apostles are described variously by Matthew, by Luke, and by John. However, in those accounts, the length of time over which those appearances occurred cannot be determined. Here we see that they occurred over a period of 40 days. Therefore, there could not have been much longer than a week or so from the command of Christ for them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father until that event of the Pentecost which is recorded in Acts chapter 2. Christ told the apostles, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the the promise of the Father, which we find later at the day of Pentecost is the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. There couldn't have been much more than a week in between his telling them to go to Jerusalem and wait and the time that it happened. Here from Luke, we see that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Verse 4, and gathering together, he instructed them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to await the promise of the Father, which you have heard of me, which is what I was just talking about. Because John baptized in water, Johannes immersed in water, but you shall be baptized in a Holy Spirit after not many days hence. 
Now, the, pen, the, the, the Codex Bezae appends until the Pentecost to the end of that verse. John baptized in water. Here is the beginning of just one of the transitions recorded in the book of Acts. John baptized in water. By the words of Peter in chapter 11 is the realization admitted that the people of the household of Cornelius had received the Holy Spirit without having first been baptized in water. And while baptism is mentioned later, a connection with water is not mentioned again after Acts chapter 11. In fact, at one point later in the book of Acts, we see a clear distinction where a certain man knew only the baptism of John, and Priscilla and Aquila had to explain to him a better way. It is therefore apparent that this statement in verse 5, because John baptized in water, is the first indication that the apostles had learned that water baptism was a ritual to be left behind with John. While at first the apostles continued it, as we progress through the book of Acts, we will see that eventually water baptism is abandoned. It was not, however, abandoned by many of the early Christian assemblies, and of course the practice has always been with us, as a part of the sacramentalism of the organized sects. If Christ tells us he has cleansed us with his word, how can man improve on that? Verse 6. So then, they who were gathered asked him, saying, Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. I won't comment at length here tonight on verse 7, except to make the offhand remark that anybody who claims to know when Babylon's going to fall, anyone who claims to know when Christ shall return, anyone who claims to know the date for the end of the world is a fraud and an antichrist. At Luke 19.11, as Christ was journeying to Jerusalem through Jericho in the last days of his ministry, we read the following. And I quote, Then adding a parable, he spoke for those hearing these things, because he was near to Jerusalem, and they were supposing that immediately the kingdom of Yahweh was going to appear. Later in that same chapter, as he was about to make his triumphal march through the gates of the city, we see this from Luke chapter 19, verse 35, and I quote, And they brought it, meaning the foal of an ass, in fulfillment of certain scripture, and they brought it to Yahshua, and casting their garments upon the colt, they mounted Yahshua. They mounted Yahshua upon the colt. And upon his going, they were spreading their garments in the road, then upon his approaching, already nearing the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of students rejoiced. Rejoicing began to praise Yahweh with a great voice concerning all of the feats which they had seen, saying, Blessed is he coming, the king in the name of Yahweh, peace in heaven and honor in the heights. 
This is also recorded in John chapter 12. Upon Yahshua's triumphant ride into, into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass, the people are said to have, to have exclaimed, O oh, save, blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh, the king of Israel, the people of Judea. And even the apostles, as we see here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, were persuaded that the kingdom of Yahweh would materialize immediately with the manifestation of the Messiah. In John chapter 6, in another incident, after Yahshua had fed a multitude of 5,000 men and also many women and children from five loaves and two fish, we have this in verse 14. Then the men, seeing the sign which he had made, said that this is truly the prophet who is coming into the society. Then Yahshua, knowing that they were going to come and seize him in order that they would make him king, he alone withdrew back into the mountain. He avoided them. Here it is evident that the apostles also expected the kingdom of Yahweh to come to fruition immediately. Acts 1.6 Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. That the apostles believe that the Messiah is the rightful king over Israel is evident right from the beginning, as one can see in John chapter 1, verse 49, where Nathanael replied to him, Rabbi, you are the son of Yahweh, you are the king of Israel. A belief and the immediate restoration of the kingdom of God to Israel prevailing in the minds of the people of Judea in regards to the Messiah. Subsequently, one of Paul's biggest challenges was in convincing the people to whom he brought the gospel that the truth was otherwise. As he explains in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23, where he says, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh unto this day, I have stood bearing testimony to both the small and the great, saying nothing outside of the things which both Moses and the prophets said are going to happen, whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection from the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. All of this is in accordance with the prophecy found in the book of Daniel, where it says at 9.26 that after a certain prophetic period of time shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. It is within the providence of God that so many Judeans understood that the Messiah was to come and missed these plain words of Daniel concerning his being cut off or killed. If he is to be king, a second coming is necessitated. As we see in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, and I quote, And when the Son of Man should come in his effulgence, and all the messengers with him, then he shall sit upon his throne of honor. Christians recognize his kingship now, even though he's not sitting on that throne of honor yet, being confidently assured that his words will certainly be fulfilled. 
the apostles at that time, along with many others of Israel, anticipated the restoration of the kingdom. Yet it is clear in the prophets and in the revelation that this will not happen until a second advent of the Christ. With this, I'll read Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day to come shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you to fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded him, unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. We haven't seen that day yet. That day does not describe the first advent of Christ. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Micah chapter 4 is a similar prophecy, speaking of the last days. But here we shall only read the last four verses of the chapter. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. That may be an allegory for the system that we live under. There shalt there shalt thou be delivered. There, Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also, many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled. Compare Revelation 18. And let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor, the chaff, the garbage, the refuse. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance under the Lord of the whole earth. This threshing did not happen prior to his first advent, so there must be another, the day of his wrath described in Revelation chapter 19. Babylon must fall first. Yet before white Christians can tread down the wicked, they must learn to love each other. Observing the world around us, without this hope, we have no hope at all.
Acts 1, verse 8. Rather, you shall receive power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. So rather than the kingdom being restored, they would spread the gospel. Rather than Israel being restored to world hegemony, they would spread the gospel under the oppression of the enemy. The Greek word eschatos is singular here, end, unto the end of the earth, and not ends. The word in this context is surely spatial and not temporal. It is difficult for me to determine whether in the singular the word is commonly used in the manner in which the Greek word paratus, which is a synonym, was used, or was often used, to denote the opposite end, the other end, the western extremity of the oikumene, the Greco-Roman world. And I have interpreted paratus in the Christogene New Testament in that manner in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, where Paul wrote, But I say, have they not heard? Yeah, rather, into all the lands without their voice, and to the western extremities of the habitable earth, their words, or the habitable world, their words. I apologize. That the children of Israel were to be scattered and removed unto all the ends of the earth is a matter of biblical prophecy. This phrase only has to do with the children of Israel. It has nothing to do with the other peoples of the world. We will demonstrate that here now. That the gospel was to be brought to the end of the earth is only an indication that all of the scattered children of Israel would be brought the gospel from abroad. What follows are some passages from Isaiah which elucidate this fact of prophecy. So this phrase that the gospel is to be brought under the end of the earth has nothing to do with non-Israelite people. Nothing whatsoever. Their word was never given. God's law was never given to the heathens. Psalm 137. From Isaiah chapter 26, from verse 13. O Yahweh our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. This is a lamentation because the Assyrians were ruling over the children of Israel at this time. But by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead. They shall not live. A reference to those same oppressors. They are deceased. They shall not rise. Therefore, that hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Yahweh. Thou hast increased the nation, meaning the children of Israel, the nation of the people of Israel. Thou art glorified. 
thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Isaiah twenty six fifteen. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far, the nation of the people of Israel, unto all the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah from chapter 41 addresses the children of Israel of the dispersion of the Assyrian deportations and other earlier dispersions of ancient Israel. That can be established from the text of Isaiah. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them his dust to his sword, and his driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way he had not gone with his feet. Who has wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. The isle saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer, him that smote with the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief man thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. We await this day today. This prophecy is not yet fulfilled. This prophecy, the subject of this prophecy is Israel in their dispersion. Fear thou not, for I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I and my God, I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they, remember our quotes from Malachi chapter 4 and from Micah chapter 4. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shall not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I, Yahweh thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, or thou remnant, Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having keys. 
Thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in Yahweh, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. And skipping to verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. Truly a messianic prophecy. Isaiah chapter 41, addressing Israel. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, Jacob whom I have chosen. Isaiah 43, Yahweh again addressing the children of Israel in their dispersion. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee and nobody else. I have called thee by thy name. Nobody else can be called Christian. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee, speaking to Israel in their dispersion. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Now it's black. Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Now they're black. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. When the book of Acts says the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, it's going to these people, the sons and daughters of Yahweh, the people of Jacob, whom Yahweh has formed, the people of Israel, whom Yahweh has redeemed. It's not meant for anybody else. period. Even everyone that is called by my name, <clears throat> for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. The blind that have eyes. These are the people whom Paul references in Acts chapter 26. At verse 18, where he states that the purpose of his ministry is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them who are sanctified by faith that is in me. Faith which Paul also had. These can only be the nations of Israel scattered abroad. Isaiah chapter 45, as if we need more than three witnesses. I have not spoken in secret, verse 19, in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. 
I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. The children of Israel were scattered among the nations. And they, they were to escape of the nations. Yahweh would, as he says in Amos, sift them like a sieve through those nations where they were scattered. They had no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior? Yahweh is Yahshua Christ. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. It's not speaking to anybody but the children of Israel scattered to the ends of the earth. The horns of Joseph, it says in Genesis 49, in the prophecy of Jacob. The horns of Joseph will push his people to the ends of the earth. Here we have it. Isaiah 45, verse 22. It's not talking about anyone other. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. God's word shall not fail. Then unto me every knee shall bow, every Israelite knee. And every tongue shall swear, every Israelite tongue. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. No exceptions and no additions. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. No exceptions and no additions. That the gospel was to be brought to the ends of the earth is a matter of prophecy because the children of Israel were to be scattered to the ends of the earth. And the gospel was explicitly for all of the children of Israel. Paul cites this very last passage of Isaiah chapter 45 in Romans chapter 11, where he says, And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Isaiah chapter 52, in its entirety. Praise Yahweh, it's not a very long chapter. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall be no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean, the non-Israelites. 
uncircumcised in heart, unclean because Christ only cleansed on the cross the children of Israel exclusively. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, the whore of Babylon. And you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down a four time into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them to howl, saith Yahweh. Think about that, the next tax bill you get. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. Here's a direct reference to the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, not, in, not unto anybody else, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigns. Yahshua Christ is king. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together. Ye waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth. Everywhere Israel is scattered. Shall see the salvation of our God. Now in the following verses, we have an admonishment to be a separate people. Even though the King James Version adds, sing to the text, of Isaiah 11.52. I will be omitting that here. Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean. Go ye out from the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Go ye out from the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh these earthen vessels which bear the spirits which our God bestowed on the Adamic man. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man. Messianic prophecy. And his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The sprinkling of blood which purifies from sin. He sprinkled the nations of Israel. 
The king shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Paul's commission, Acts chapter 9, to the nations and to the kings of the sons of Israel. We'll discuss that one at length also. Where Paul says in Romans 15, from verse 21, But as it is written, To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. He was referencing this last part of Isaiah 52. Paul also quotes from Isaiah 52 in Romans chapter 10, where he says, And how shall they preach except that they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Yahweh, who has believed our report? That's the beginning of Isaiah chapter 53. So then faith coming by hearing and by hearing the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul understood that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were indeed the scattered people of Israel. As we've just seen in so many passages in Isaiah. Jeremiah 16, from verse 19. O Yahweh, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The nations, not Gentiles, the nations shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, and this verse proves my point, these are the nations of Israel. Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods. The words of Jeremiah intended for the children of Israel. The nations shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth. The gospel is not for all of the nations of the non-Israelite people under the ends of the earth. To make such a claim is to set it not all of these words of the prophets. Rather, the gospel was for all Israel who was scattered under the ends of the earth. The prophet Jeremiah tells of the fate of all of those non-Israel nations which Israel was scattered among in chapters 30 and 46 of his prophecy. Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel, I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, and he would scatter them to all the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 46, verse 28, Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, 
For I will make a full end of all the nations. Nations are people groups. Nations are not governments and geographical units. Nations are people groups. The Hebrew word boy refers to a people, not to a geographical area. It refers to a people, not to a government. I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee, but I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. Israel is to be regathered in Christ. And therefore the gospel of Christ had to be brought under the ends of the earth, as we see here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It shall become evident that Paul understood that his message was to the dispersion of Israel and only to the dispersion of Israel. In Acts chapter 13, verse 23, Paul professes, speaking of David, that of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. In Acts chapter 28, Paul exclaims that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Not for the hope of Gentiles, not for the hope of non-Israelite people. For the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Many other proofs of the exclusivity of the message of Paul, of Luke, and of the gospel of God shall be elucidated as this series unfolds. All which shall prove Christian identity to be the only valid interpretation of Scripture. Of course, there are other messages in Scripture for the children of Israel which are also important. Yahweh be willing, we shall be discussing them in future weeks as well. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren discussing the Bavarian Red Republic. Thank you and good night.